jealous, cunning, manipulative, and revengeful. Those are just some of the negative traits of a Scorpio. These three people show us how, in the right environment, this combination of flaws can lead to the world of crime. This is the story of Petiso Rejudo, the youngest serial killer from Argentina. Watching this on YouTube, you're literally witnessing a meltdown. <laughs> I have just recorded a video on uh, a mini-sode, basically. <laughs> Let's not spoil it. But during recording, you know, once you actually voice something, the mini-sodes this month, as you probably know, have figured out from last week's, also have a pattern. It's fictional things. <laughs> fictional things. It is fictional portrayals. It's fake crime, basically. Either series or movies that I have found that have something to do with crime that I would recommend people watch. And this particular thing that I have recorded, once actually voicing it, hearing it, how it sounds in my head, <laughs> and finishing it, recording of like four hours, I was like, I don't think I would recommend this to people. <laughs> so this day definitely has a point. Listen, we're gonna discuss something interesting. Because this case brings a theory that I was taught in during criminology, during my year there, and I hated so much. I hated the guy behind it. And he just seems to have explained this crime in, like, the early 1900s. So people were just fine with it. And I'm just sitting there like, this is so wrong on so many levels. So... The motivations of this guy are really still ambiguous to date. Also, why is the name? By all means necessary is the game. And I have to explain something, because a lot of you who are bilingual, again, doesn't need to be. You don't need to be. But it helps, especially when I choose international cases. I didn't name this guy, okay? Because I know Petiso is kind of like using the F slur to describe a gay person on a certain level. There are other terms for somebody to describe a small person, a person of a small size, a midget. If it was a fictional work, if you were reading a book, it would probably be something like duende or enano, like a dwarf, a small person, or just like bajito, persona pequeña, <laughs> de pequeña tamaña, miniatura, okay? Yeah. If this was the world of Elite, or like Lebelde, it would probably be like miniatura, just like a miniature person. No term is like politically correct, but Petiso is literally like... And then you have Orejuda, which is like big-eared. Literally, they just did him dirty. It's a big-eared midget. And the person we're talking about, Caetano, completely deserved it. Caetano, by the way, I swear I will get to the point. I swear I will talk about the guy. Caetano? Again, to put things into perspective for people, the most telenovela name out there. Also, <laughs> it's like one of those things. What is the name? Oh, fuck's sake. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Did you prepare a script today? No, we are going... First episode, we are freelancing, we are swinging it. 
Nothing but swinging my foot. <laughs> no, this is not. I am not approving of swinging. Wow, this is a mess. I love it. I love it already. What I was saying, Caetano. Basically, you know how all of the other podcasts would say, like, you wouldn't name a baby Gary. Like, you wouldn't see a baby today and be like, oh, what's appropriate name for a child? Oh, baby Gary. Like, no. That's just not how it happens. That's kind of the equivalent with Caetano. It's like naming a child Gertrude. Then you're like, yeah. This is the name that had its living. It had... The time and the place. There was a time and the place for it. And it was in late 18,000s and early 1900s. But now it's time to get into the meaty gritty of this story. I know that is not an expression. So when you see that I'm crazy like this, don't fight it. Don't spite it. Follow the current. Follow the current all the way through. Because these moments are rare. And they usually come with no reason, no rhyme or reason. I woke up tired, I woke up exhausted. So, cherish it while it lasts. Okay. The year is 1912. What happened in 1912? Titanic sunk. That is pretty much it. I mean, a ton of things happened according to, like, the websites and timelines online, but pretty much the Titanic sinking kind of stole the glory of it. Reasonably so, I'm not arguing with that being the biggest event of the year. Other things that I noted down that happened, well, in May of 1912, Paramount Pictures, the studio, has been founded. In October, the First Balkan War broke out with Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece opposing Turkey, and then Turkish people ruled our ass for about half a century. But hey, we have good Turkish dishes and Turkish coffee. Let's just ignore all the people that died in the war. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> Today is not the day and I am not the person. But across the world, in Argentina, a serial killer ruled the world and he was like 15 at the time, so that was great. <laughs> He was allowed to start his killing spree, and within a year, he will kill four people. And we'll already have had some victims in the past. But until his arrest, 12 months from then, he'll claim four lives and leave seven other victims scarred for life. Let us talk about him, shall we? What is his full name? His full name is Cayetano Santos Godino. And he was a son of Fiore and Lucia, which just from the names, you can guess that they were Italians that moved to Buenos Aires in 1884. Well, you couldn't probably guess that second part unless you were, like, some next level. How would they have guessed that? They wouldn't. Could you... Somehow, if I told you the name Fiore and Lucia, and you're like, yep, Italian immigrants, analfabetos, illiterate, please, learn a language. Based on the name, stop fighting people. They're gonna come for you at the comments. You know that you're gonna pay for this. You know that you're gonna pay for you treating them like they should know what analfabeto means. It's such a cool word. What are other cool words? Estrapalarico, estrambotico, I swear those are all the words. <laughs> you will never need those words that I'm uttering now. Some of them probably don't even mean anything, but okay. His parents were Italian immigrants, they lived in poverty in Buenos Aires. And because of that, because of the conditions that they lived in, 
their first child, who they also named Cayetano, died from a cardiac arrest only 10 months after he was born. After their first child died, Fiore and Lucia had a daughter that they named Josefa. Now that they have settled down, they will have nine more kids. The last one, to be born in 1896, would also be named Cayetano, like their first child. And they didn't see any red flags, they just liked the name. As I told you, the popular name back in the day. And this is the Caetano we are talking about. He was born on Halloween. He was born October the 31st, 1896. And he was one of the eight boys, meaning that Josefa was the only daughter in the household. Not much is known about their family life, apart from the usual when it comes to serial killers, which is that the dads are usually abusive. So there are records of Fiore abusing Lucia, beating her and all of the nine children. Something that a lot of people neglect when it comes to the historical crimes that we don't have much data on, people don't necessarily speculate like how insane it is that somebody is an abuser of such huge families. Fiore was said to have abused Lucia and also all nine children. None of them was safe and he was also an alcoholic. So you're kind of trying to think like how the hell do you abuse all of your children. There's nine of them. There's nine of them that you need to beat up. Like, at what point do you get tired? At what point do you stop? If you are an avid listener of the podcast, I probably mentioned a couple of times that both of my parents would, you know, sometimes beat us up once my brother and myself were younger. But again, it was only me and my brother. None of them was abusive to one another. And also, it was only once we fucked up big time. Mostly when my brother would steal from the family. And also when he was like four or five years old. Because there's no point of doing it once they're all grown up. But I'm just thinking, even after that, like, if you have an emotional attachment to children... If you have any form of attachment, like, once you beat up one, you don't go into the next room to beat up the other. You don't beat, like, nine of them in a full cycle. I just... I will never be able to understand that nobody makes an emphasis on that. Or just, like, how fucked up that is. Plenty of people listening to this are probably against beating their own children. I'm not necessarily against it. I don't think I'll ever have a child, but... But if I were to have one, I probably wouldn't be against that. But then again, something we don't talk about is, like, how insane it would look like to you if you just got the beating and then, for some reason, you see another child, another sibling of yours get beaten. And in his family, he was the youngest one. He just saw everybody get beaten. And then he was like, okay, I guess... It's my turn. So, yeah, basically what I was saying is an unhealthy home environment. I just went too far with that in terms of visualization. But let me know if you got a beating once or twice as a kid or plenty of times and you have siblings. Did your parents ever, like, I don't know, go into a manic episode where they beat one of you for doing something wrong and then they beat all of you? Because that just doesn't commute in my head. I just will never be able to fully get it. Another point in the story that you will literally find as, like, a simple passing one line is the fact that his dad had syphilis when Caetano was born. Well, rather, when he was conceived. And because every single account of events mentions this in 
one passing line like, oh yeah, that will not affect the child, I had to freaking look it up. So, these are some potential effects on the child's health if a parent is uh, syphilitic or if they have syphilis. The first bullet point on this list is the fact that he should actually be lucky that he survived. Because the congenital syphilis can cause a baby's death during pregnancy, or can cause a stillbirth, or a death shortly after birth. It can also cause a variety of problems with your joints, with your bones, with your hearing, with your vision, with the nervous system, including having seizures, being paralyzed in certain parts of the body. But most importantly, and something that I definitely think is prevalent for Caetano here, were the developmental delays. And if his parents were to be paying attention, they would probably start realizing from the early age that their child wasn't progressing as fast as expected, wasn't reaching certain milestones as fast or in a certain time span as the other kids would be. Apart from all of the developmental issues, it was said that Caetano was also really weak as a child. He was always sickly, and it seemed that maybe his father had had syphilis for quite some time, because a lot of his siblings were as well. It was known that one of his brothers was also epileptic, which could have been due to the conditions in home as well, due to the trauma, because, as I mentioned, it was known that Fiore would reach home after a hard day at work and would start beating up his wife and then his children. And his work, I cannot make this shit up. I wish I could. I wish this was my mind. You know um, streetlights, right? Alumbrados, if you are Spanish. Basically, the ones you will see on motorways where there's two lights, one on each side. I'll put it up on the screen because I suck at languages today. Well, his father was changing those lights. So he'd be the person, like, literally changing light bulbs. This was a job, okay? Farolero. <laughs> It exists. So, after this not stressful job, really, you would think, like, it's chill, you know? He returns home and beats up his whole family. So, you'd think, okay, Maya, but then, eventually, Caetano and his siblings would start going to school. That is going to be his savior. The school will become his safe place. The education will save the world. No. Mm-mm. The records later would show that Caetano was expelled from six schools, and it said that none of these schools taught him how to read, which he was expelled because of his poor attendance, because he was mostly on the streets trying to avoid his parents, and also because he wasn't really interested in schools. Nobody told him that the education might be his way out. But I just find the comment of nobody taught him how to read to be interesting. Like, how hard is it to teach a small child how to read? Again, could be because of developmental issues, and also because once he would be examined by doctors later, they would find 27 scars on his head only. So, only talking about his head that were caused by his dad's beatings. And as we know, usually with serial killers, if it is frontal lobe, it probably affected his motor skills and also the ability to make rational decisions in the future. We don't really know where exactly he was beaten or how, 
but the fact that he would have these many scars, some of them probably healed at that point, kind of leads me to believe that it's not like his dad would be like, oh, I'm going to hit only the lobe that won't affect any ability for you to make decisions in the future. I don't think that his parents gave a fuck, to be honest. So, where was Cayetano if he wasn't in school and once he wasn't at home? Well, if you have ever heard a single account on a serial killer, you kind of know where this is going, but not everybody likes to listen to this particular part of the story, because it is triggering and it involves animals. So, let me just mention briefly a McDonald triad, right? So, you have bedwetting, you have setting fire, and you have violence towards animals. Caetano would have two of the three. Well, at least we don't know of any bedwetting situations, which I feel we would know because we know the violence within the family. Still, he committed fully to the other two. From the age of five, he would start going to different schools that would all expel him. And in between those schools, or just when he was avoiding going to classes, he was getting very familiar with streets. Street life, literally. From the age of five, he was just lurking different streets, playgrounds, playing with kids, and those actions will eventually turn violent. But before they did, he started taking it out, all of the home life, all of the abuse on animals. Because, of course, he was still little. He couldn't really face his parents. He couldn't really retaliate and beat them up. Nor could he do the same with bigger kids in school, with kids that would bully him for his looks, for his perked-up ears. So he started taking it out on animals. It is said that he started with birds and cats, sort of killing them slowly while watching as the animal would be suffering. And then, may I emphasize, from the age of five onwards, he would start playing with smaller kids. So he would go to the playgrounds in his school breaks, and he was just trying to skip classes, play games with them, offer them sweets, offer to basically walk with them or just run, play the childish games. For about two years, between the age of five and seven, he would just be lurking on the streets, sort of scouting the good areas where he could bring these kids that are smaller than him, that he can just offer up the sweets and that would follow. And in 1904, when he was only seven years old, he struck his first victim. This would be one of the few victims in his build-up to murder. So, these were just the victims of assault, but still, they suffered greatly in the hands of Cayetano. So, this first victim was called Miguel de Paoli, and he was a two-year-old. He was a toddler, just playing with Cayetano at the playground, and when his mom wasn't looking, he just managed to take this child to walk with him. And then he beat him into the head with a stone and just left him, well, for dead, for all he knew, in a ditch. Luckily for Miguel here, a police officer was actually patrolling the area, and he witnessed this happen. He witnessed somebody beating a child and then throwing them into this ditch. So he managed to stop Caetano from fleeing the area and also to save Miguel's life, and he brought them both into a police station. Because of his age, once Caetano's mom was called, well, they just were allowed to take him back home. 
In the next year, he didn't stop. I mean, we can only assume how many victims there were in between that we are not even aware of. There is this account of this child that, again, he attacked in the playground, and this was a two-year-old, and he managed to get cigarettes, first of all, and then to light them up and burn this child's eyelids. Luckily, this child was still alive at this point and managed to scream and alert to the mother. But the event that is definitely on the record is the one that happened only a year after his first known assault victim, Miguel. This was in 1905 when Caetano was eight, nine years old. I'm not really sure which month this happened in. But he was, again, playing with younger children, and this girl, who was only a year and a half old, Anna Neri, was found, again, in a ditch after being hit repeatedly with a stone. Here, luckily, again, other children witnessed this and managed to alert the parents who alerted the police. Here, Caetano would actually be left in prison to chill in a prison cell for a couple of hours, but then was let go that same evening because of his young age. You gotta love how in these serial killer stories, uh, doesn't matter if they're from 1970s, 1980s, or literally like 1905, where it's either a doctor or a police officer. It's always a person of authority that is just like, they're gonna grow out of it. It's fine. You just let them out. Like, no, this is wild all of the juvenile establishments exist, where you now put the children that clearly have some issues. But they didn't know back then. So, he was just let out back on the streets, and just a year after this, he will commit his first murder due to that. You gotta wonder how many victims he got away with, because even this murder that he committed in 1906 will go unnoticed until he confessed to it a couple of years later. What he would confess to was that in 1906, he took this girl, who he estimated to be about three years old, to this disposable grounds, kind of like a landfill area, and he tried to strangle her. But then, because he wasn't strong enough to strangle this girl, he left her alive in a ditch and then just covered her in garbage in these cans. Because we know that he will only get caught in 1912, this is six years after the crime, once he was eventually to confess about killing this girl, the police officers would go to the site, but they would find out that a building has been built since then. So that victim was technically never confirmed, rather her body was never found, because they never got the permit to burn that building to the ground, really, to find that victim. I don't know what to tell you. Just imagine being that freaking family who, like, now knows where their daughter is, but can't do anything about it. Now, this shit fucking scares me to death. We have covered all of those things on the How to Get Away with Murder minisode, and people who truly have access to property or just know exactly when to bury somebody under a building that is being erected at a time are A, evil, two masterminds, three, get away from me, move, I don't need you in my life, I don't need you with that mentality where you can switch up on me and be like, I'm gonna bury her into the fucking asphalt of, like, 
this building that I'm erecting, stop saying erecting. Okay, so this won't be the crime that is going to land him in jail, though. The crime that will lead to his imprisonment was masturbation. I can't, I can't make this shit up. When he was 10, his parents discovered that he was a compulsive wanker. Also, at the age of 10, it's a, it's a tad too early, my man. So, because they didn't know what to do, like, his parents were like, how do we resolve this issue? And his dad was like, I don't know, I'm an alcoholic, I just know how to beat children up, and that doesn't seem to be really resolving this guy's issue. So, his mom called the police, on his son. She didn't call him for, like, beating children in the playground, no. She was like, hey, my son, he's been wanking in his room. And because masturbation was illegal at the time, Caetano was actually in prison for two months for masturbation. He spent more time in prison for jerking it off than he did for actually assaulting babies, toddlers. This pattern of his parents not really knowing how to deal with him, not really knowing what to do, kind of repeats itself. Because even after this, that same year, 1906, his dad would call the police station, sort of asking them, like, can he spend some more time in prison? Because I don't actually know how to control him. I'll put up on the screen the actual script of, like, apparently what he said. I don't know how they have this in the archives, but they do. So, he called the police station, said, I can't with him. He breaks the glass in the neighbor's houses, he beats the neighboring kids, and if I lock him up in the house, it's even worse, because he gets all crazy. The other day, I found a shoebox in my room, and in this shoebox, there were dead canaries, and he took their eyes out, and the feathers from their body, like feather by feather, and then left those as souvenirs in a shoebox next to my bed. Because of this complaint by his parents, he went in front of a judge, but then he was returned to the parents, but because they would insistently call in and complain, and other neighbors would as well, in 1908, he was finally detained in this reformation house, whatever they had that was closest to juvenile homes back then, and he would stay there for three years. The place where he was staying was eerie as hell. It just looked like one of those abandoned houses that you would see in horror places. And here, he did learn how to read and write, but it is said that far from rehabilitation and making sure that he can get back to the society, that it would just make him more of a recluse. It just seems that the place might have roughened him up a bit more, and it is said that once he went back on the streets in 1911, that it just seemed like he lived through things other kids wouldn't. And because of that, he could never actually assimilate himself back into the society as a normal kid. In fact, now he was even further from ever achieving that. Once he got back out, so now he's 14, going on 15, in 1911, his parents got him a job at a factory, but he would only last about three months at his job, and then would just go back out on the streets. It was said that Caetano was always playing with fire, but the first recorded incident was in January of 1912. This is when Caetano set fire to this warehouse on Corrientes Street. 
Eventually, when he would get arrested for his crimes about this fire, he would say, I like to see firemen working. It is nice to see how they fall into the fire. Just the eeriest fucking saying. You know that meme of that girl that is looking back at you with the place burning behind her and she's just like has that creepy smile to her? I listen to the stories. There are videos. There's a channel. I'm making zero sense. There's a channel about like how the people become memes and they tell you the backstory of it. And if I remember right, she said that on that day, literally they were just passing by a building, a burnt house, and her dad thought that it would make a nice picture, something along those lines. And then she just smiled because she's used to smiling in pictures. It's nice to know a backstory behind a meme, even though you can't remember it literally after you watch it. I watched it like a year ago. Shut up. So irrelevant. So creepy. So creepy and also not where it stops. So on January the 26th, he lured another kid who was 13 at the time called Arturo Laurona and he killed him in an abandoned house where he was later found. Only two months after this kill, it seemed like he was on a spree, probably without even knowing it or acknowledging it, this five-year-old girl called Reina Bonita was just looking through a window of a shoe shop. And as she was looking at the shoes inside, somebody was throwing phosphorus on top of her, on top of her dress. And then they threw a match. And that somebody was Cayetano, who just lit this five-year-old on fire. The police officers were called and it was said that one of the police officers even tried to like throw themselves onto the burning girl to save her life, to dampen this fire, but she couldn't be saved. Even despite of her burns, she actually survived for about 16 days and then she died in the hospital. This was in March, so only about a couple of months later, in September, Cayetano would end up setting a fire to a railway station. In this instance, he wouldn't get caught again because there wasn't much damage done to the building. But then in November, he lured another child, this time an 8-year-old called Roberto Russo. Here, after beating this kid almost to death again, he was arrested and charged with attempted murder, but then would get released until he was to await for his trial. But then while out on bail, I suppose, if bail has even existed back then, just a couple of days later, eight days from that assault, he assaulted a three-year-old Carmen Gitoni. Another police officer managed to intervene here and Carmen was saved. It just doesn't sound like the safest place if the police is literally seconds away from every single crime scene and also makes you believe that they're gonna do something about it, but they never do. So only four days after this, Caetano would kidnap a two-year-old called Carolina Neolene. She managed to cry out for help and was later rescued by a neighbor. Before we speak about his final attacks and what kind of justice he is going to face, let us speak about what these kids would actually endure in his hands. Did he have any particular victimology and any particular MO that he followed? Plenty of pictures of Caetano that you will find on the internet showcase him wearing this robe. 
which he would make into a knot, and he wore this as his belt. So he would use this rope in order to tackle his victims, to stop them from resisting. He would make sure if a victim was to resist, that he uses matches in order to break that cord in parts, so that he can use each part of the rope to make sure that he ties up their hands, their arms, and eventually to use some of that rope to strangle them. And yet, you see at least like three, four pictures of him posing with this freaking rope. I don't know if these were taken once he was imprisoned. Also, what is the logic behind that? If so, or if it's just like his parents, or, like family members on the street being like, hey, pose with this rope without ever asking, like, what are you using the rope for, Cayetano? Hey, Leo, Petiso, Petiso, Orejudo, please. <laughs> Por favor, why are we using this rope? It's like, oh no, it's a belt. Then why are you posing with a rope in your hands? Most of his victims, if it was up to him, would be toddlers, would be babies up until two years old. And he would try to attack them and eventually kill them in a similar way. He would usually use his hands or would have a stone or a rock nearby and then we use that weapon, whatever it was, to beat them until they were unconscious or, in some instances, dead already. Then he would use that rope, he would take it from around his waist and use it to either restrain them or strangle them or both. And then the most insane part in this story was that with a lot of victims, they would find nails still sort of hammered, stuck in their temple area. They must have seen this somewhere. We know with these fixations he had seen something somewhere. Whether it was with animals, he'd seen something somewhere, and the fact that he was hitting them in the head, that the whole focus was either like burning the eyelids or hitting them with a stone in the head. Again, how many scars did they find on his own skull? That part leads me to believe that it was because of how his dad was treating him, that he was just replicating that on people that he considered weaker, the way his dad considered his son to be weak. But the nail part, he's seen it. Whether it was on animals, you know, on the farm, he must have seen for something like this to stick with a person, you know, in the day and age when there was no TV, no series, no morbid fake crime portrayals like this. And somehow, I mean, this is probably the most morbid part, I don't think it gets any worse than somebody hammering, because he wouldn't even have a hammer, so he'd probably use those rocks or stones to actually hammer those nails into their heads. But then, even on an emotional level, he'd get completely fucked up, because with certain victims, he would even attend their funerals just to see if that nail is still in the head or if somebody removed it. That's why I think there is some deep-rooted fixation. Or maybe because I couldn't find files about his time in the institution. Maybe that is where he had seen something like this that we just would never be aware of. 
We are finally in December of 1912, on December the 3rd, to be exact, Jesualdito's mom, Jesualdo was this three-and-a-half-year-old child just playing in the garden in his own house. Well, his mom popped her head through the door and she was kind of looking at the sky, being like, okay, it's kind of cloudy, maybe you should come in. But basically, she just turned to her son and said, just stay playing there and don't cross the street. And that would be the last time she was to see her son. Because what happened in the meantime was that Caetano was just passing by, he saw this young boy playing outside, and he said, come, come with me, follow me, let's just go and buy some sweets down the road. So, after giving him a couple of sweets, again, making this child feel safe in his presence, he led Hesualdo to this country house that he knew was to be abandoned. Once they were inside, he threw Hesualdo onto the floor, tried to choke him with his little knot belt. Then, when that didn't work, he followed the same process of cutting that rope and trying to restrain his arms and legs. After doing this, he started beating Hesualdo until he was unconscious. After that, he left this house to look for a nail. And then he saw Hesualdo's dad looking for the boy. But of course, he couldn't let the opportunity pass. He had to find that nail and go back into the house to hammer it into this boy's head before his father finds him. So that's just what he did. He re-entered the house with a nail, hammered it into the temple, and tried to hide a corpse. But Hesualdo's body was found by his dad only a few minutes after. At 8 p.m. that evening, Caetano would attend the wake for Hesualdo, and he even got close to the coffin, close enough to touch the skull, exactly at the spot where he earlier on that day fixed that nail into his temple. Between that day and the next day, when the police will finally arrest him and when he will have to confess to all of his crimes, he would also search for any newspaper articles about his own crime and then he would cut them out of the newspapers and keep them to himself. Before we speak about the ending of this story or where he landed after being arrested, let us talk about the possible motivations, rather the theory that was particularly prevalent at the time. And here, this story truly wouldn't be complete without the work of one such Cesare Lombroso, who in 1876 established this theory. So, Cesare, if you look at the picture of him, is the guy that looks like he purposely wanted his beard and moustache to look like... <laughs> his down area, to look like his genitals, because what the hell is this beard shape? Well, anyways, he was a big deal in criminology. We had, like, a whole chapter, had to have exams on him, hated his guts. He thought that you were born a criminal, but not because of the nature-nurture debate. No, purely because of your genes. Purely because of the way you look. He thought every single criminal would have one or multiple of these features. A sloping forehead, unusually shaped ears, a symmetrical face, or just certain bumps on the skull. 
and that criminals would represent primitive form of man and can be differentiated from non-criminals by these features that I have just told you. And of course, if you take a little glance at our boy Petiso Rehudo here, I mean, his ears tell you everything. He couldn't be anything but a criminal. Basically, the whole premise of Cesare's Lombroso's theory was that if you are not conventionally beautiful, you are a criminal. There's just no escaping. That is it. God forbid if he lived in this day and age and saw my nose, he'd be like, oh my god, not symmetrical whatsoever. Doesn't fit this face at all. Mm-mm. She gonna give me crumbs purely because of this freaking nozzle. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Nuzzle, plenty of accounts in this story would state that later in life, Caetano would go through a plastic surgery, just some form of surgery. But I found pictures of him when he was older, and I don't see it. I mean, he didn't do the most detrimental one, which would be his ears. Also, like, what kind of surgery was he able to do in early 1900s? I don't believe these account of events because I actually don't see a difference. I just see sort of like age progression. I don't see that any surgery was performed on him. I mean, in his head, he still stayed the same. Importantly enough, he actually never felt regret. Or rather, there are questions about how much he had known because he was only 14, 15 at the time how much he understood without actually having any proper education, and did he even understand what certain terms mean? Because once he was to be arrested, they asked him, obviously, a couple of questions. He confessed to the crimes. But they asked him, are you happy or are you sad? And he said he's happy. So they followed that up, asking him, does he have any regrets about what he had done? And he said he doesn't understand. So they asked him, do you think you will be punished for your crimes? And to that, he responded by saying what he had heard. Like, I have heard I'm going to spend 20 years in prison. And if not, I will be shot to death. As in, I will get a death penalty. So it doesn't seem like he was processing any of these questions. Like, do you think he was actually intelligent enough to understand them? Or were all of these hits to his head kind of detrimental when it comes to his mental development? Like, was he, you know, retrasado a bit? Was he a bit challenged? Another thing when we are thinking about the motivations and actual intent, we kind of have to think about what he would have said as a reason. Like, did he see any treatment that he had gotten as a child as potential influence? And, well, according to him, he said he would kind of get possessed in a way. He'd say he'd get headaches, and the only way to alleviate those headaches would be if he was hitting something, if he was actively trying to kill somebody. But all of the exams that they performed at the time of his arrest discarded epilepsy, discarded, like, anything significant done to his head, any significant impact. 
And if you remember, I told you part of the interview that he would have once he got arrested about the fireman falling into the fire. Well, that was his answer when he was asked why did he set the houses on fire. So he said, I like to watch firemen get to work. I'd like to watch them fall into the fire. But then they asked him, what about robbing people? And he said, I tried it and I don't like it. Which leads me to believe that he was still intelligent enough, if that is the way to describe it, he was able to make decisions. So maybe he didn't know right from wrong, but he knew what he liked to do and what he didn't. And he never mentions that robbing or watching people being in pain, watching all these animals being in pain, led to his headaches being cured. So I think that's just something that popped into his head on a whim, thinking of his own defense. But what I find interesting in this case, when it comes to motivations, when it comes to the motives, is that people either see it as like, oh, it's this Lombroso's theory, like he was born evil because he was ugly. Or it is just like he was a degenerate. He was this person who was a bit of an arsler, a bit slow, meaning that, again, we are saying that he was born evil and the nurture had really nothing to do with it. I don't know what you think. I definitely think that he was hit into the head a couple of more times than maybe he should have been. Don't hit, don't hit your kids in the head. It just doesn't lead to anything normal. And I definitely think that there is a lack of focus on what the hell he has seen. Whether he was at his home, whether he was at this place, I'd very much like to know where the hell the nails are coming from, because that is a fixation, that is, he has seen something somewhere that left that impression, that he wanted to repeat, that he wanted to reenact himself. So I think it's personal, I think he has seen it within his family, or maybe for three years on repeat in this new place, to the point where he was like, no, this is what I want to relive. And I think he definitely had the potential to be slower, to have some developmental issues, because his father had syphilis, because it was kind of predisposed since his birth, because of the conditions that he lived in, the fact that he didn't go to school. But I don't think that it's purely nature, that he was just born that way, and that, you know, despite of that, he had still been left on the streets, and if he hadn't been born that way, he would have still been this way. No. I think if anybody knew what the hell they were doing with their children in terms of how they were being brought up, in terms of making him go to school, not beating the shit out of him, he could have turned out differently. But that's my opinion. Now, let's go back into the story, back into the aftermath of what the hell happened with our big-eared midget. When he was arrested, he was brought in front of a judge in January 1913, and he was to be charged for three victims that they were aware of, Arturo, Reina, and Jesualdo. And here they brought him to the doctor, obviously, for the medical reports to be conducted, and these reports declared him insane. So the judge, instead of sending him to jail, sent him to a reformatory. 
This is where he's going to stay for about two years before he actually moves to the real jail. And this is where he's going to get his moniker of Petiso Rehudo because he was tiny and because he had big ears. No shit, Sherlock. From this point on, of course, he won't have the best time in this reformatory, neither will he be living his best life in prison. But while in this reformatory, he actually got another charge onto him. He attempted to kill a fellow patient, so again, he was brought in front of a judge. And the Chamber of Appeals overturned the ruling in 1915, saying that he is mentally insane, so they sentenced him to life in prison. In 1923, he will be moved to a different prison, this prison in Ushuaia. In 1927, the apparent surgery happens to reduce the size of his ears, which I don't see, but maybe that is how they conducted surgeries back then. Maybe they were just subtle, okay? Subtle ear reduction, to which I say, what is the point? But that didn't help if you were of the Lombrosian era believing in that theory that if you were to reduce the size of his ears, if you were to make him prettier, if you wish, that that is going to reduce the criminality in him. That somehow didn't work. I know, it comes, it's such a surprise. I, I know, it's such a shocker. Plastic surgery doesn't actually change up your genes, neither does it affect you mentally. Insane. Wild. Wild concept. I, I, I don't know what to say. It just comes with such a shocker in this story. So in this last prison where he was staying, he was still a living nightmare, just a walking hell. These inmates, because again, this is 19,000s, would be allowed to keep pets behind bars to take care of the animals, to feed and care mostly for cats. So, you know where this is going, he really doesn't like pets, doesn't like cats. So in 1943, Caetano would end up beating the cats to death and then disposing of the cats' bodies in a fire. Come on, if you know he likes to light up fires, why do we let him near one? As you can imagine, when about 600 of his fellow inmates found out about this, uh, they were kind of pissed, angry, enraged, fuming, whichever one you choose. So they hushed these officers, the prison guards, to beat him up close enough to death, but not just close enough to kill him. Because of this beating, most of 1933, he spent in the prison hospital. And then... After released and before his death in 1944, he would still be in the same prison, but he would never get any visitors. And of course, was still very much hated by everybody inside. On November the 15th, 1944, some prison guards found him dead inside of his prison cell, and his death would be looked into as potential mysterious circumstances. It could have been a possible result of the ongoing beating by his inmates, but legally, on all of the documents, it was attributed to internal bleeding caused by gastritis. And just as a fact of the day, I wouldn't really call it a fun fact to wrap this case up, the first known serial killer in Argentina was also named Caetano. And these two were the only two Caetanos 
Although Argentina only had about eight serial killers, according to Wikipedia at least. And in 1944, they got rid of one. I don't know anything about the burial, about the funeral. Just, what a waste of space. <laughs> and it truly didn't have to be like that. But he got beaten left, right and center all of his life. It, it doesn't lead to much good if this story taught you anything. It is that. But now you're going into your next Zoom call or just an actual meeting. I don't know what your circumstances are in life. And my question to you, to us, to other people in those meetings, or just to ponder on. So as I've been watching and covering more and more of these fictional stories for the minisodes and just the main YouTube channel, I've been truly thinking about something. Like, if I was to be able to live through, as I do very much so, all of these fictional stories, like unlimited amount of really good, great fictional storylines where you bond with the characters, where there's character development, where you live through these people vivaciously, vicariously, whichever the word. Would I choose that, so like as many personalities, as many people that you bond with, versus just having real-life experiences only with the people you know and you have made friends with so far. Which one would I choose? Because sometimes when I'm like deep down into the fictional, into the fantasy world, I think that would be it. I truly think that that, that would be, you know... <laughs> Once I cry over and over again over these characters, I'm like, okay, maybe there's a problem. Maybe I am the issue. Do you ever feel that way? Are you like a normal person that thinks that, no, whatever the way, I would always choose real-life people, real-life experiences. And if so, what was the last thing that that, the real-life situation, has taught you? What was the last thing that you have learned from a person in real life compared to the actual story, the actual thing that came out of somebody's mind and was portrayed in, like, a squid game. Okay, cool. I'm gonna get a fuck out of here before I start <laughs> saying weird shit and lose about five friends that I have in real life. I just think at times it says a lot about who you are as a person. And in pondering that, who you are as a person, you do what? You keep making this world a better place. One more thing. Bye, fuckers. Where's the outro tune? <laughs> Where's the outro tune it? Okay, play, play, play. Ah, ah, ah. As I mentioned, you're stepping into the shoes of Dad Kaczynski's brother, David. So just imagine me.